A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never got home, they never got home, they never got home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I'm the I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's World Cup podcast. We have got a World Cup final to look forward to today between the best team in the world and the best player in the world. I've seen it referred to in many places. It's probably hard to argue with that. Not many people saw Germany as the best team in the world going into the competition, but I guess Didn't it's hard to argue with <laughs> yeah, yeah. that. That's coloured it slightly for me, certainly. Mm. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, if you take if you take the 7-1 out of the equation, you know, maybe they're not the best yeah. team in the world. And but take that 4-0 against Portugal out of the equation. And yeah. what have they done besides giving themselves 11 goals? Yeah, I know, I know. I mean, you can keep taking things out of the equation. In the end, you're not going to have an equation. So the <laughs> equation we've gone with is best player versus best team. The best player didn't have much of an impact last night. And I have to say, watching that game, it felt like the final day of a three-day stag party. Or a hen party, I don't know. I don't. I don't, know what the hen, no, I don't know what they're like. In a ways, I don't want to know. But mm. you've already had your fun the previous night. Mm-hmm. when you're on these three days. Now you're feeling a little ropey. You're convincing yourself that you're enjoying yourself. The in-jokes are a little bit half-hearted. Mm. A couple of your mates are annoying you a small bit. You just want to hop on the next train home. Mm. Oh, my God, the bride's brother. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. oh, That's God, how I felt get... watching the game last night. I'll get through it. Okay, there's a bit of a payoff at the end. You know, Usually you have a good night eventually in that third, but mm. no. no. Yeah, well, no. It's, it's actually, you're, you're right, because, you know, the... You kind of we were struggling a little bit over the weekend. That you know the, after the quarterfinals, that was the Saturday morning hangover. Mm. You know the semi final then was actually the amazing Saturday night that you made, you pulled it out of the bag. Yeah. It was brilliant, and then yeah, you hung around on Sunday. You oh. really wish you hadn't. Hung why, did book, the, why didn't I book the flight on the Sunday morning? What was I thinking? My mood wasn't greatly helped by having. I like the flight, Murph. I like your fancy uh, fancy stag parties. I was going to say, say train. <laughs> I don't know where you're off to. My mood wasn't helped by having a the Mascarano. 16 bus back into town, basically, is what McDevitt's uh, stag party yeah. uh, journey hub is all about. Mascarano being allowed to play on with his concussion. I was watching ITV for this one, and they didn't even think it was worthy of discussion at half or full time, which I thought was crazy, really, because nothing happened in that match, especially in the first, well, at all, really, for the 90 minutes. So I would have thought there was time to discuss what was easily the most interesting thing about it, I thought. I watched Ortiz's coverage of England-Uruguay when Eamon Dunphy used the incident involving Alvaro Pereira to show how tough the Uruguayan players were, which was true 
of that player and is true of Mascarano. But again, that missed, I thought, the bigger issue. And that is that these guys are being allowed to put themselves at risk, both short and long-term risk by playing on while concussed. And FIFA doesn't seem to care about it. It's a bigger issue. Everyone talks about diving non-stop and it's not great, but I don't think it's as serious as this is. We'll get into that with Richie, with Richie Sadler shortly, but let's first get over to Brazil. Yeah, you can laugh. That was the World Cup. Can early a World Cup final between Germany and Argentina with Leo Messi involved? Are you happy enough with that for a week's work? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I suppose everybody thought maybe Brazil against Argentina would be a pretty uh, dramatic occasion, but there's no doubt that Germany deserve to be there uh, and I guess that Argentina have been the second best team uh, over the tournament so yeah probably the the, the right teams have, have got to the final and it's I mean, it's been a big fixture over the last uh, couple of World Cups I mean Germany have knocked Argentina out of the last two um, so I don't know whether it's third time lucky for Argentina I mean I'm just looking forward to seeing Lionel Messi in the World Cup final I mean we didn't know if this was ever going to happen not every great player is lucky enough to play in one, but he's he's managed to make it this far. Yeah, he has. So uh, we'll see what happens in the finals. So let's just talk a little bit about Holland first, because it's the, the last we'll see. if they, Well, no, it's not. They have to play in this third-place playoff that Van Hal seems to absolutely abhor. But um, was the whole Van Hal tactical genius thing a little bit overrated? I mean, his main switches earlier on in the tournament involved bringing on a goalkeeper for a penalty shootout, which Martin O'Neill reminded us yesterday he did in 1996. Um, bring on a big lad up top to outmuscle the opposition. I don't know, maybe I'm being unfair. He's taken a fairly limited team to the brink of a World Cup final, which is pretty good, but I'm just a little bit, it's a little bit too much made of some of the moves he made. Well, I think the big, um, the big thing that he did was the, was the destruction of Spain, which was achieved yeah. by Holland with a completely unfamiliar way of playing, which had been devised specifically for the game by Louis van Gaal. And I think he deserves all the credit in the world for that. I mean, I don't mean all the credit in the world. It's just a cliche on it. I mean, uh, pretty much all the credit uh, that could go to anyone for any reason should actually go to Louis van Gaal for masterminding the destruction of Spain. I mean, you know, uh, credit where credit is due. Uh, that was a that was a pretty amazing result, and it wasn't as though anybody had seen it coming or was saying, "Oh, Spain are." You know, I suppose some of us um, doubted whether Spain maybe would win the World Cup, but I certainly was not one of the people who thought that they would struggle to get out of the group. I thought Holland would be the team that would struggle. So when they completely crushed Spain uh, and played well in the group and scored a lot of goals, uh, everything was looking good. I mean, things obviously changed a little bit then in the knockout phase. Um, you know, I, I do think maybe the the praise over the penalty shootout was was a little bit much because while Holland clearly did seem to be well prepared in that first penalty shootout, you know, the, it's one of those sort of after the fact you look well prepared. I mean, I'm sure they were equally well prepared for the one uh, last night. I, I can't imagine that they, <clears throat> you know, uh, that there was anything different apart from the fact that they had to use three substitutions in the game. I mean, I think that was the first thing. That was the very first thing Louis van Gaal was asked in the press conference, by the way. Did it go through your mind to bring on Krul again? And uh, he said, uh, I'd already used three substitutes, so I couldn't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he was, he was quite patient uh, with that question, but he got a little bit more impatient as, as the thing went on. I mean, I think, uh, you know, they, they, Holland were really negative against Argentina. Uh, they weren't the only ones on the pitch being negative. Uh, van Gaal had to make... Uh, uh, he, you know, he had to take account of the fact that Lionel Messi was on the opposing team. Is he going to just play 
one-on-one against Lionel Messi and hope that Holland get away with it, it's probably not going to work out. So he had to, he, he devised a plan to neutralize Messi and hope that, you know, Robin could score one on the break, essentially. And it didn't work out. It nearly did. If it wasn't for Mascherano's tackle in the, at the very end, it would have worked out. Yeah. Uh, but the, mar- the margins are pretty fine. 240 minutes without scoring a goal in the quarters and semifinals. Well, what I'm, what I'm wondering about is what, what was going on with Van Persie. Yeah. Because, I mean, yeah. I remember talking to you about uh, how impressed I was with him uh, after a couple of the group matches, and particularly his, his physical condition. Uh, and and he, he's just been a completely different player these last couple of matches. I mean, Van Gaal said he took him off last night because he was exhausted. Um, you know, why is, he, why is he exhausted in the World Cup semi-final? You know, I, I thought, he, I mean, I was obviously wrong, uh, you know, when I was saying that I thought he, he looked fitter than ever. Um, there may have been an injury that he picked up along the line. I mean, there was a there was a doubt, there was some kind of a sickness uh, or something like that that he had, but pretty disappointing. I mean, I think uh, you know I, I hadn't foreseen that Van Persie's form would would collapse so dramatically. And maybe if if we'd seen the Van Persie of the first couple of matches in the knockout phase, I don't think Holland would have gone that long without uh, scoring a goal. No, Argentina and Messi. Can what did you make of his reaction? He was a lot more animated than we've ever seen Leo Messi in our lives before, probably. Yeah, it's like Lionel Messi is, is uh, human. It's like a human being, like everybody else. With uh, you know, who gets excited when his team wins a penalty shootout. I mean, <laughs> we could we could see that. I mean, he did. You know, you could see when the players were all, uh, you know, the Argentine players were all ripping off their shirts and and swinging them over their heads and going around. Messi kind of wasn't really joining in so much. Um, uh, and I noticed they they all then went into the dressing room and took a team photo in their underwear. Uh, which Messi did seem to be, and maybe he was taking the photo. Maybe he was the one saying, "Hey, lads, lads, you know, you know, get into the." Maybe, maybe it was Lionel Messi. He came from his camera. I don't know, but um, yeah, yeah, he seems to be. I, I mean, I'm sure he's. Uh, I know that he's completely aware of how important this is from that sort of legacy point of view. So it's an agenda that nobody else in the Argentina team really shares. Um, this sort of place and history concern that Lionel Messi has. Um, but it's something that he's well aware of, and uh, and now he's got the chance to, you know, to, to end all the arguments. Yeah, we've been um, speaking to Marcella Mora Iaraco for our our other podcast we put out today. So I don't know if people have had a chance to listen to any of that yet. But she was very interesting, uh, Argentinian journalist based in Buenos Aires. She was talking about how crazy everyone's going, but she said that the sense she gets is that people are actually it's a huge achievement to get to this final, and it surprised a lot of people, and actually. If they lose to Germany, it's not really the end of the world. It's not like they're losing to Brazil and they probably don't have the same burning desire that this has to happen, that they have to win, which I was interested in. I would have thought that, that they'd be going crazy for a victory. Yeah, that's just, um, that's just uh, voodoo talk, isn't it? I mean, it's just trying to, trying to pretend that you don't really desperately want to beat Germany. Germany uh, have been Argentina's bosses for a long time. I mean, Argentina been singing that song about uh, Brazil and how it feels to have your daddy in house. Well, Germany are definitely Argentina's daddy, going by the um, going by the last three World Cup results between the team. I mean, the World Cup final in 1990, which Germany won, the 2006 quarter final, which Germany won on penalties, and then the the last one, which is just a complete wipeout. Um, I mean, maybe maybe it isn't a rivalry. Maybe it's too one sided to be a rivalry. 
Um, but I think that you, when you get to the final and you've got the chance to win the World Cup in the Maracanã and you haven't been in the final for 24 years and you're up against a team that's knocked you out of the last two World Cups, <laughs> I don't think you can. I don't think you can pretend that that ah, oh, you know, sure, uh, silver, silver is almost as good as gold. You know, these are what a great bunch of lads. I don't think it's going to be like. I think it's going to be devastation yeah. um, from the Argentinians. I mean, you've seen you've seen these scenes from Buenos Aires are ridiculous. You know, I mean, uh, <laughs> Buenos Aires may be a peculiarly suited city to for this kind of thing, just because those avenues are so gigantic. Uh, you could really fit a lot of. You could really fit a very big crowd on some of those avenues in Buenos Aires. And it seems to me that there's quite a lot of excitement. In fact, I'm in I'm in Rio, and last night uh, when Argentina won. Uh, it was as though Brazil had won. I mean, it was. I don't, I don't know what was going on exactly, but I could just hear these screeches from outside and fireworks uh, and car horns, uh, and it really sounded almost as though it was Brazil had won the match. So, um, obviously, a lot of Argentinians already here booking ahead for the final and maybe they were the ones who were who were delighted to see that it hadn't all gone to waste. Yeah, I know you're on the move today, Ken, so we have to let you go shortly, but uh, I do want to ask you how much of a chance you're giving Argentina, bearing in mind Sergio Aguero was put back on the field yesterday, probably not fit. They've got Di Maria, who I think has been superb, for, I think well, certainly in the in the knockout stages, he's made the difference on a couple of occasions. Uh, they might rush him back. Do they have enough, do you think, to trouble, well, not just trouble, to actually beat Germany? Well, they don't have as good a team as Germany, but what they do have is players through the middle of their team who are playing well. I mean, the goalkeeper, who I don't think is particularly good, um, and he was he was poor against Switzerland in the, in the only Argentina match that I've actually seen, but has been play, has played well in the last two matches. Garay, the central defender, has has played well. Um, they've brought in De Michaelis, who I think has been better than Fernandez, who was having to be talked through the matches. Um, Mascherano is having an amazing tournament, and 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 seems to be you know really on a mission. You know this is his he, this is his certainly his last chance, um, and he's playing brilliantly. And then there's uh, Higuain, who I think is uh, you know I think Higuain is a very good player. He hasn't necessarily maybe been in his best form, but he did get that great goal in the quarterfinal. And then they've then they've got Lionel Messi. And the one thing about having Messi in your team is that you know that. You know, just like Holland, where the other night Germany are going to have to think hard about what they want to do. You know, are they do they want to leave Messi free and and play their own game, or are they going to have to adapt their own style to playing against uh, to playing against Messi to try and shut him down? Uh, and if they do that, then you, you can't really expect to see the same kind of Germany as we saw against Brazil. I mean, you, we won't see the same Germany as we saw against Brazil anyway. I'm sure, because Argentina are not going to allow Germany the kind of space that Brazil did. I mean, Brazil, it was a special circumstance. Brazil were really having a bit of a, a bit of a breakdown all over the field. Um, Argentina, you would imagine, can't possibly, surely they can't possibly uh, come apart in the same way. I mean, the last time they played Germany, it was Maradona as the coach. He, he sort of went for it in a Kevin Keegan kind of way. It was just Mascherano really in midfield. It wasn't enough uh, against Germany. Um, so I think that, uh, I think it's going to be obviously a much higher game. If you were betting on one side, you'd probably have to bet in Germany, but that would mean you'd have to bet against the side that had Messi in it, and nobody would want to do that either. Yeah, all right. Well, listen, I have to let you get going today, but we will have a nice long post-World Cup final chat on Monday. You're going to be at the American Ken. Enjoy the game. We'll talk to you on Monday. Thanks for being on, and thank you too, Kieran. Thank you, Ken. 
I'm already looking forward to our chat with Ken on Monday morning. We'll get him before he mm. flies home from Brazil. It's uh, only the bloody World Cup final on. Oh, it's going to be unbelievable. Richie Sadler is with us. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? You were pretty good. I'm sure you're pretty good. You predicted Argentina when you were in before the tournament. And it's looking... Well, there's, they're one of two teams left, so you still have a chance. Oh, I was way too modest to remind you of that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I did tip them beforehand. For for the for reasons that haven't turned out to be true, to be honest, I thought it was because of the wealth of attacking options that they had, that even on the off chance that you kept Messi quiet, there was too many other threats up front. They had too many quality players in attacking positions and that they would just overpower you. Any any defence would just be overpowered. And that hasn't been the case. <laughs> that hasn't been the case at all. But yes, I'm still alive with my Don't prediction. It, <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, that's all right, yes. I should really sit here and, and, and just carry on the, the, the thing that was very cleverly picked <laughs> for reasons which have turned out to be true but that wasn't the case not a great game last night awful uh, game it, yeah it was a pretty poor match I did see some people tweeting oh no it's an interesting game but I always think if you start using the word interesting about a game immediately that means <laughs> it's not very good there, there are a lot of euphemisms that are used but uh, I don't know maybe we were spoiled the night before with the drama yeah cagey affair tactical battle all these kind they're of never, things yeah. they, they, they don't appeal to me at all um, <laughs> I mean yeah you, you, you could sit here and, and, and argue that there are all of those things and you could put forward a case as to why that was the case there's a lot at stake, obviously, and you would assume most, and by the looks of the way the game went, both managers seemed to send their players out with instructions of how to nullify the opposition threat, and that was plan A. And both of them did that really well. Mm. Um, as a spectator, if you're sitting there with, like, with, with no real interest in who wins the game or not, so you're just wanting to be entertained, it offered nothing. Like It was awful, two hours of nothingness. You do at least get a penalty shootout at the yes. end of this. That's the magic of these competitions. And Van Hal uh, was interested afterwards. He says he, the reason that Vlaar took the first penalty, he was cri- Van Hal was criticised for sending a centre-half up there to take it, was that nobody else wanted to take it. He'd asked two other players, will you take the first penalty? And they said no. He was asked by a journalist at the press conference can you identify those players? And he said, no, that's a humiliating question. I, I presume it would be humiliating to the players, he felt, to name them. I think the question was probably worth asking from the journalist's point. Does that surprise you? I, I, would have, I was about yeah. to ask you who were the two players. <laughs> would that surprise you, the players just saying no? And I, I, I don't know if it was 100% clear if they just didn't want to take the first one or if they both mm. said, we're just not taking one full stop. Well, I think they were absolutely right in saying no if they and, and there is this thing in football and I think it was it was revealed in the way Van Hal answered the follow up question that, that it, it's a humiliating thing or you are in some way you've let people down or it's something to be ashamed of if you've turned down the opportunity to go up and take a penalty but if you for whatever reason whether you're, you're carrying a knock your head's all over the shop or you just genuinely believe that if you go and take a penalty you're going to lose well then you've done a phenomenally good thing for your teammates in your country by saying no, by being honest and ballsy enough to say, do you know what? I, uh, it's not in our interest that I take this penalty and I'm willing to take That's the ballsy thing. Because a lot absolutely. of people say that that's the Exa- cowardly well, way. Well, exactly. And, 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 and that's the thing in football, it, 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 particularly in, in, in football. It's if you say no. I remember reading a, a thing from Paul Ince. He said that he took a penalty kick, possibly in the 2004 Euros. I may have mixed up my year, but he missed and he revealed in, a, in a, an interview a few years later, he actually had a broken fo- foot, a uh, broken bone in his ankle. Right. And I remember the time the way the press spun it was, hero wins, tough as nails, tough as old boots, took a penalty. I read that and I went, what a prat. Yeah. Why, what, why, why, why take a penalty in a scenario like that? Now, he may not have known that it was a fracture. He may not have known the extent of the injury, but he surely would have felt pain. It was enough pain for him to mention it years later in an interview. So why not do the, the do the brave thing, the decent thing, 
the, the best thing by your teammates and turn around and go, I'm not the man to take this penalty kick. Yeah. And I, so I, I would think, now maybe that's not a, a, a common view, but I think for the two players last night, who genuinely, for their own reasons, and it doesn't matter whether they would have been proved right or wrong, it took a lot of guts to turn around and say, in that environment, because football dressing and football squads, they don't take well to, answer, to, to, to people saying things like that. Fair play. Apparently Lothar Mateus refused to take the penalty in normal time in the 1990 World Cup final. Andres Bremer took it and scored. And Mateus has never been forgiven by a lot of people in Germany for that, which maybe just indicates and vindicates what you're saying there, that the comedy held view is that if you back down, you're seen as... It's, yeah. you're, 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 you're weak, you're not up for it, you are in some way shirking your responsibility. You're less than, basically. You can put your own way of phrasing it, but you are less than the players who went up and took one. And I, I don't agree with that. I think it's. I think. I think it takes a lot of guts to do something that you know you'll be widely criticized criticized for. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a strange one though because you would presume that Klaus Jan Huntelaar is one of the players that was asked to take that penalty, and he stepped up and took the penalty against Mexico, and that was obviously a huge. I mean, that's a, even well, maybe it's not more stressful, but it's in the normal run of play. There are there are ten other people that could take that penalty, whereas in a penalty shootout, obviously the numbers are less and less of people who aren't going to take a penalty. So it would strike me as quite strange that Huntelaar would say, right, I'll take the penalty against Mexico, but I won't take the first. So, Do we know that Huntelaar? You're just assuming... Well, I mean, he was on the pitch, so you would think that... He, he might have been the earmark for the fifth or something, but you are, I, I guess, yeah. Mm, if you're looking yeah. at your strong penalty takers, presumably that's what Van Hal is talking about, one, yeah. of, one of these kind of guys. And, you know, like, uh, Van Persie was the guy who was down to take the first one. And, you know, they front-loaded all of their penalty takers, the, fr- the best four penalty takers available to them in the in the earlier penalty shootout, they took the first four. So it's it's kind of strange. Is there something in the order of the penalty that a guy wouldn't want to take the first one but would want to take the fifth one? That doesn't make any sense to me now. I think I remember watching, was it, did Neymar take the fifth? Uh, Back yeah, against did, Chile. Yeah, yeah, and I remember watching that going, and, and, and some players do it. I've been in a couple of shootouts and, and the, the, the strikers are often left till the end and a lot of strikers want to be at the end because they want to take the penalty kick that wins it. <laughs> it's a very positive way of looking at things. Yeah. Say, I want to be the one that gets remembered for taking the winning, winning penalty kick and that option isn't available to you if you take the first three. Generally speaking, it goes to the fourth or fifth penalty kick. So um, a lot of people would go to, to be the fifth to be the hero. They wouldn't see it as a as a, an opportunity to, so to disappoint anyone. Yeah, so is that what, that must have been what Hunter did. It's quite strange though, if the manager... Surely in, in a situation like that, the manager says this is the order because we want to make sure we're in we're in it and if Ron Vlaer is the guy who has to take the penalty to put us through to a World Cup final then that's what we're going to have to I think to that's a management with. call because there's a variety of different ways you can approach this it, like there is the approach that Van Gaal maybe did at the start last night so right hands up who wants to take it hmm. other coaches before the game would be started would have their order set up and it wouldn't be down to the players hmm. um, I don't think it's the wrong way of doing it Um Ronaldo. But I, you, you, you don't, whatever whatever about who picks the penalty takers or whatever order they go in, you're, you're, you're doomed to failure if you are insisting on someone taking a penalty if that person does not feel comfortable taking it. For whatever reason, whether it's a last-minute change of heart, whether it's an injury during a game, whether he's been affected by his performance, a multitude of reasons can play in a fella's mind. But if he genuinely doesn't want to take one and doesn't think he'll score get him well away from it. I was involved in a penalty shootout at a much lower level than Richie's talking about here. Slightly, and yeah. okay, go on, yeah. I stepped up, Murph. I said, give me the ball, I'll take the first penalty. 
and I slotted straight into the keeper's arms. It was near the it wasn't even in the middle. You know, in the middle might go in. It was near the middle, just to the keeper's left. Nice height. He could have stood, but thankfully for me, he actually did. Dive, yeah. panned it away, but he really could have just stood there and caught it. <laughs> but I took that first penalty, Murph. So I'm sure I had the respect of my teammates after we lost that match. Uh, there was an argument last night between Dixon, Lee Dixon, and Martin O'Neill uh, on ITV's coverage. Dixon was trotting out the idea that there's no pressure on the goalkeeper, which is generally in a shootout, which is I suppose generally accepted that that they're rarely criticised for not saving, but they can be the hero by saving one or two point O'Neill made was that actually Jasper Sillison, the Dutch keeper in this case, is under a lot of pressure because of what happened in the last round where he was bombed out and Tim Krul came in to save a couple. Now straight away people are going to be looking at Sillison and wondering if he made saves. And he did look sort of nervous and didn't make any saves. Did uh, While that was seen as a masterstroke in the quarterfinal, did it actually come back to haunt Holland in the semifinal? It, it it could have done. I suppose to be interested to know how Van Hal dealt with Sillison in the aftermath of the previous round, as to how disappointed he was. I'm sure he wasn't that disappointed because they ultimately won the game and Cruel did well. But I think it did. It raised the expectations a little bit on him because of Cruel's performance in the previous round. I was in a conversation with Brad Freed last week, and um, we were in RTE, and I was fascinated listening to him describe what a goalkeeper's. Uh, mood is in, in a penalty shootout, and I remember playing. I, I had this very dismissive view of a goalkeeper think well they, they, surely there's no pressure on them they're expected to do nothing all the expectation is on me to score mm. and you can only be a hero you can't be the one to let you down if you're let the team down if you're the keeper and he kind of agreed with that he said yeah he said that's what we tell ourselves like that, that there is no expectation on us um, but he was it was really interesting the the amount of detail that he went into when he was trying to explain how he works out which direction to dive Right. And it was everything from, I mean, he said it right nowadays, they, they, there's, there's every, every dugout now, there's someone has an iPad and they beat the data of where the kicker took his previous kicks or whatever. But everything from, from where the player looks, the pace of their run-up, the length of their run-up, the side, the, 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 like the, the, whether it's to the left or the right of the ball as they're walking up to place the ball, um, everything yeah. about it. And I, I was sitting there going... Surely it's guesswork, but apparently it's not. A lot yeah. goes into it. And it, certainly, a it certainly seems that Tim Cruel did a lot of that. Um, you know, did a lot of that analysis ahead of the first mm. game. Would you say Citizens' confidence would be knocked heading into that shootout that he hadn't been trusted in the previous round? It, again, it's how Van Hal dealt with it, but I'd say it would have to have been. Mm. Like it would have to have been, and like we can sit here and objectively say, well, it was the correct decision because Cruel did well and they won, but. I remember being on the pitches and being taken off and just because my replacement scored and we won, it didn't soften the blow that I was taken off. I was still pretty hurt that I was taken off. And I think that will still play in the player's mind as well. And as for the expectations on him last night or the, or the increased pressure, I think there probably was a bit more pressure on him because the whole world watching that penalty shootout last night would have been aware that but for the fact that he made a third substitution, he probably wouldn't be on the pitch. Yeah. So... He's not the man, If you, again, you can spin it this way, he's not the man Van Hal wanted in the penalty shootout because of his decision to bring on Krill the other day. So that would have surely played on his mind a little bit. Into it might have motivated him to go, do you know what, I'll show everyone wrong and Van Hal will, 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 will pick me from now on based on the performance I'm about to give. But it surely would have been a factor. With regards to taking penalties, uh, you said you've taken them in shootouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mindset of that is interesting. The, be- the best description I've heard of what you should do came from Owen Hargreaves, actually. He was taking a penalty in, it would have been the Champions League final, uh, I guess. And the, yeah, Moscow, playing, yeah. Yeah, so he was, he was about to take the final, uh, about to take the penalty, and his English teammates 
who were playing for Chelsea knew what way he took penalties. They'd seen him, they'd practised at whatever major competitions and they knew exactly what he did, what corner he went for and how regularly he did that. So he actually noticed that they were pointing to, <clears throat> I don't even think it was an attempt to put him up, but they were pointing to check saying, look, this is where he's putting it, you know, top right corner or whatever it is. And he said, oh, okay, what do I do here now? Um, so he strolls up, puts it down, is thinking, should I go for... And then he thought, no, 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 listen, I'm a good striker to ball. I never miss penalties in, in training or anything. I've practiced this loads of times. This is what I'm going for. Went for a check dived, tall keeper, right corner, couldn't get to it because it was just well struck. And the sports psychologist who was involved in this Radio 5 Live documentary was saying, like, that's just exactly what you want to hear from a player. That's what you do. You decide something. doesn't matter if the keeper tells you, as Cruel did, I know where you're putting it. Just put it there anyway, because the worst thing you can do is a last minute change of mind. Would that be broadly correct? I remember, I, I suppose you're into a whole area here of psychology and, and, and staying focused and staying concentrated and, and eliminating all the external factors that could come into your mind. And one of them being like the, the, the goalkeeper acting the goat on the line mm-hmm. or seeing someone point or whatever else goes on. And, and I remember the, the, the simplistic way I was over, we were ever told was pick a spot and stick to it. Don't change your mind. So from the walk up from the halfway line, you're always just in your head that this is what I'm going to do. It's going to go to the bottom left and that's it. So that no matter what happens, it's always going to go there. And that can be hard to do. <laughs> um, but remember, I, I, when I finished, I, I did a sports science degree and there was a psychology module. And I, there was the first time I ever came across the idea that you, you, you can discipline your mind in certain ways and you can shut out external things by practicing. This was completely new to me. And I was sitting there going, God, if I'd only known this, I wouldn't have heard a word of all the criticism during play and I would have ignored what was in newspapers or I would have... All the various different things a psychologist can work with a player to do. But when it comes to a penalty kick, th- the thing is always just believe in the thing that you've practised in. Believe that that will just serve you well. Yeah. And it matters. So exactly like Hargreaves said, he said, well, I practised this in a particular spot. I can believe in how I strike the ball. And that's all that matters. All the other thing of what's going on in the keeper's mind, you can tie yourself up in knots by trying to second guess what he thinks you're going to do. Mm. So if that's what he thinks you're going to do, do the opposite. Then you go, well, if he knows, I know. And then you're... Then you're yeah, that yeah. that, that, that yeah. loop can continue again and again and again. So just keep it simple. It's interesting you mentioned that idea of shutting out external factors because Brazil last mm. night, two nights ago... <laughs> well, they, they did the exact opposite. They were holding the Neymar jersey and they were wearing his cap and Thiago Silva was involved in the warm-up, trying to G the players up, which, uh, you know, it seemed to fly in the face of everything that we think is good about uh, you should do sports preparation. We had Tim Vickery on the show talking about the sports psychology element and he said that Brazil do use one and Felipe Scolari has a guy, uh, could be a woman actually, who he's used for many years with his teams, but uh, presumably they had pre-tournament chats. But in terms of the tournament itself, this psychologist was only drafted in after they almost had a meltdown against Chile in the penalty shootout, which I found kind of interesting. I would have thought, in this day and age, you you have somebody there for the whole tournament. I would have, I would have thought. I would have thought that. That yeah. surprised me when I when I realised that because going back to the Confederations Cup a year ago, the thing that they kept saying from within the squad and all the Brazilian media and all the anyone who was reporting in that competition kept talking about pressure and expectation and. Um, this burden that this Brazilian team are yeah. going to carry. They're all psychological things. There's nothing here to do with physical stuff. So if that was identified as the main issue, and this is stuff they were saying themselves, why not bring in experts that solely are there to address that issue? Yeah. That, just seems, that just seems really basic. If you've identified a problem, bring in someone who can help you with it. Yeah. So, so to bring in a psychologist after 
It's like, like in my head now, because I, I, a psychologist in my mind is on a par with a physiotherapist or a, a, a dentist or whatever. It's just someone who will, who will bring a bit of expertise to the party. And in professional sport at this level, you need that expertise. So why you wouldn't bring it? Scolari... So managers, you see, think they can do it themselves. Apparently Scolari is one of those managers. That's his big thing. I'm the father figure for these guys. And and that's the thing. And then then I think... Then you're in the realms of saying, will a manager trust another professional to be unsupervised with his players when he's not there or to deal one-on-one? Will, will that psychologist be saying anything that conflicts or undermines what I'm trying to say to the players? And, and that's, when, that's when it's down to management. Because you hear a lot of managers now when they're talking about modern management, they say, you know, you've got to be a marriage counsellor, you've, you've got to be a psychologist, you've got to be... And you turn and go, well, maybe you don't. There are yeah. people out there who are all of those things, so why not employ them? Yeah, and Ken, and Ken was saying yesterday, that, you know, he, I think he said that Bill, uh, Scolari was a guy who gave up on tactics 10 years ago. So, you know, if you, if you, ha- if you are an old-school manager who doesn't believe in, you know, over-tactically analysing your own team or the opposition team, there's not a whole lot left if you bring in a, a, a psychologist, you know, you're it's, kind of... Wondering. That's my thing, is yeah. that I do the psychology. That, that, that's what he would think. Yeah, yeah. he's basically, he's, he's left with basically no area of expertise that he can talk to his players in. One area, if, if football's a bit behind maybe on sports psychology, one area where it definitely is behind is the whole concussion um, issue, which, I, I don't know, Richie, but you made of Javier Mascarano yesterday, clearly concussed, uh, staggering around, really struggling... And then bravely getting back on the pitch. I don't think anyone would doubt that it's a brave thing to do. But is it a, a dangerous thing to do that he should, that something that should be taken out of his hands? Do you think? Well, I think first of all, it, it, it's difficult to diagnose a fellow with concussion or not. From uh, I watch it from my sitting room, but he did appear to be wobbly mm. for a few moments. In in the event that a person has lost consciousness, as was the case in the Uruguay game a, few, a couple of weeks back. Or has suffered concussion. You can suffer concussion without losing consciousness. Yeah. Like, it's probably helpful in a conversation like this to call it what it is. It's a traumatic brain injury. So, if you call it that, you kind of you're, you're tiptoeing towards how serious the thing actually is. Now, a lot of research has been done. So, a lot of information is out there on the dangers of this area and 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 the pitfalls of keeping a fella on a pitch in a competitive environment while he's experiencing this. Mm. Now, by football, leaving it in the hands of a player or a physio or a manager, they're deciding to ignore this, to not acknowledge it in any way. And that, that can't be good. Yeah. It, it, like, it's, it's, it's reckless. And unfortunately, unless something happens, if you carry on with a scenario where a concussed player can play on the pitch, where he's going to repeatedly head the ball or, or get in tackles or do all sorts of things... We're going to get to a scenario where someone is suffers very, very serious injury, and then it's too late. Then, it, then anyone who comes out and talks about player welfare, they need to protect players, is a moron because all the information is there today. Mm. So, if you're not singing that song today, don't wait till someone dies and then sing it yeah. because then you just look like you're completely behind. And that's the most spectacular. I mean, it, it can be fatal in rare circumstances. Very there, rare. There is, second, yeah. yeah, very rare second impact syndrome. But Ben Robinson in, in Ireland, a 14 year old kid in Antrim played rugby and he died from that and his parents have been campaigning since to increase awareness in sport of this issue. So that's the ex- extreme example but the long, long-term long impact has been made very clear in the NFL in recent years mm. and in other sports that these 
players, these people who suffer repeated concussions can suffer degenerative brain diseases that can affect them later in life. So we're talking about serious issues here. And I just find it, like FIFA has a doctor at the match, but they say the doctor is there for advice. The doctor doesn't have any say over the ultimate decision. The Uruguayan doctor, I, I hadn't realised this at the time, it actually escaped me, but just reading again this morning what had happened in the aftermath of, of that incident involving Pereira, their player, mm. if people remember the England game, uh, he submitted a statement after the game to say that he had a, he had done a complete uh, full neurological examination and he determined the player could continue, which I find staggering because everybody saw on TV that it looked very much as though he was trying to ask that player to come off. So I don't know what happened in between that and then the mm-hmm. statement coming out, but it just seems to me that, I don't know, FIFA maybe need, if it's not somebody dying on the pitch, they it could be a massive lawsuit down the line, as has happened in the NFL, of a bunch of players saying, look, you guys didn't protect us at the time. I, I think it's it's a cultural thing and it's not unique to, to, to professional football. Like You even used the word there, bravery, in relation to carrying on. So yeah. No one questioned bravery. So in, in this conversation in football, it's kind of divided between it's the brave thing to do and you know, bravery is a trait that most lads want to be associated with and it's maybe not brave. Whatever you call not brave is, is would be the player who turns around and goes, do you know what? I, I'm, I'm, I was out cold there for a few seconds and the fact that this is a semi-final or a quarter-final or a final, I'm not going to allow that to come into the discussion here. I was out cold there's a long-term risk here in my health. Like, no player thinks like that. Yeah. When, you're, when you're caught up in, in, in the moment, you're not going to think of that. So I think in a scenario like this, players should be protected from themselves. Like, it's a, it's, a, it's a problem, really, if you have a FIFA doctor in the ground who can overrule a manager because their manager will be up in arms saying, here are FIFA interfering in my team selection. That mm. can't be allowed. So you've just got to really... I don't know how you do it. Because, because football, the starting point of all this is that it's... It, it, you, you're praised for carrying on. It's the brave, manly, courageous, gutsy thing to do. He's the kind of fellow you want in the trenches with you. All these phrases that are constantly repeated again and again, they refer to the type of things that would be linked to a player who gets a big knock on his head. Like, you know, Terry Butcher covered in blood with a bandage. We saw them photos for years. You're, you're praised for that in football. Yeah. So to introduce something here, you can see how difficult it would be to implement something with this cultural... Reality. I think they have to do it though. It's, the, it's the same in rugby, and rugby, if anything, trades even more on the whole yeah. heroic image. And they, there's huge debate going on in that sport about the way they've gone because certain people feel that actually they've regressed. They brought in these protocols where a guy can be subbed off for a few minutes and checked out, and then decide whether he can go back on the field. Some doctors, such as it's Barry O'Driscoll, I think his name is Brian O'Driscoll's uh, uncle, who was on a uh, was on the IRB board. He quit because he said, look, that's, that's just not right. You can't make that decision in five minutes. And if people are showing signs that they may be concussed, that, at, at that point you have to consider taking them off. Mm. It used to be that there was a, a few weeks mandatory rest period. after. The, I mean, I'm sure we'll see Mascarano in the final. There's absolutely no doubt we'll see Mascarano in the mm-hmm. final. That's a few days after suffering a concussion. So I think they at least have to acknowledge that there's the issue. And you're making the point that they haven't. So this debate isn't something that's being had, which worries me because... FIFA are always big on what happens at the... Part of the reason they didn't want to bring in video technology was because, well, it's a worldwide sport, you know, and we can't bring it in at all the levels. It's one world, one sport, all this kind of thing. If that's the case, then a World Cup semi-final is showcasing that you don't care about concussions. So that would would worry me as to what happens further down the levels. But we'll move on because there is a, a final to play. And we haven't actually mentioned Germany 
and their role in the dismantling of Brazil. Mm-hmm. Fabio Cannavaro said yesterday that Germany should have shown a bit more respect to Brazil and stopped scoring at 5-0. What do you think of that? How weird is that for a statement for a start? <laughs> yeah. That we're actually sitting here saying, you know, you, you've done enough damage, <laughs> five is enough. There was there was talk. Did, did Hummels come out and say? Oh yeah, Matt, he Matt Hummel said that we made it. I think when I first read this story, I thought he was saying he was agreeing with Cannavaro, but it's slightly different. He said we made it clear at halftime we had to stay focused and not try to humiliate them. You have to show the opponent respect. It was important that we did this and we didn't try to show some magic. I think that uh, what I read of that, if you go past whatever way that those quotes were, were whatever headline was attached to that column, but. I, I read that it's like, don't start showboating. Yeah. Don't like the centre half start running up and don't be bursting out laughing if you know if you, if you if you miss a chance or do ridiculously wild celebrations and really rub it in their noses. Um, I, I I would disagree. The kind of virus said you, you should stop scoring. Yeah, That's it was a strange when he offence should like. All your offensive play should be just nullified. It That's really it. Weird. We're only here to defend. I don't even see much of Cannavaro. I don't know if you've seen much of Murph on ITV, but he's uh, <laughs> he, he, he doesn't offer a huge amount a lot of the time. But he's very uh, looks great. He looks, smiles a lot. He's great, an absolute great, great legend of the game. But sometimes he does make the the odd really pertinent point. But he's just smiling away so charmingly while saying it. You're thinking, is he actually? And Adrian Childs had to ask him. You're saying they should have they should have shown more respect by not scoring and. He said, "Yeah, that's the." It can be hard to get a read on what exactly yeah. he's, he's saying and but, how much yeah. he's how much he actually means. Exactly, what he's yeah. But in this case, Charles did get him to clarify, and that is what he said. Yeah, that you shouldn't score anymore. I, I, I would disagree with that. I mean, mm. the, the the chances of a comeback would, would have like nobody, I think, would, at all was sitting there watching the halftime saying, "Oh, Germany need to keep it tight because there's going to be a Brazil backlash here and there's going to be goals, so they need to keep going at it. I don't think we're in the realms of that, but no. to, to to stop attacking or just to have a keep ball session, I think that would have been more disrespectful. There's an American sport that they're big into that. The whole yeah. idea of running up the score is seen as somewhat insulting. Usually, if you're far enough ahead that the game is certainly won, you actually start taking off your best players and yeah. just relax and, and, uh, Like the uh, the New England Patriots, in particular, in the past, have gotten loads and loads of criticism because they don't take off their quarter, they don't rest their quarterback, they keep throwing touchdowns, and like they're seen as really arrogant as a result of doing <laughs> yeah, this, which strange. is a strange thing, you know. But I mean, you know, whatever it was, two years ago, Spain beat Italy four nil in a European Cup final, and Iker Casillas. Remember, there was that video yeah. of Iker Casillas talking to the 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 guys behind the goals saying, "Why are you playing?" You know, finish it now. Remember, they, yeah, to the instead of playing, guys, yeah. yeah, instead of playing four minutes of injury time, you know, wrap it up. You know, the humiliation is complete. Like I would have thought, if I was Fabio Cannavaro, former Italian captain, one of their greatest ever players, if I heard Iker Casillas saying that, it was like I would be, you know, Casillas. You know, what the hell are you talking it's about? You know what I mean? Yeah. That's so patronising to us. But then he's actually saying the exact same yeah. thing. You know, it's, it seems I would say that, that would be extremely patronising. I mean, it, if you're going five and up and you refuse, if you're like uh, side footing the ball to each other rather than just finishing the goals what, number six and what, seven, I'd, whatever yeah. about what was behind the, the the sentiment, whether it was out of respect or the avoidance of humiliation, I, I think it kind of undermined that slightly by coming out and telling us that that was the plan. Mm. <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean? Like if you're in half time and say, right, lads, let's not take the piss. We're five and up. We are going to be in the final. There's no way we're not going to be. Let, let's not 
be gung ho. Like we mm. don't have to get double figures here. Then fair enough. But to come out then and publicly say, <laughs> yeah. do you know what we did? It kind of undoes. Listen, all listen the up, good. world. Yeah, listen yeah. up, world. We were the we were going to be the bigger men and not rub it in about yeah. how brilliant we are. Yeah, if you're going to be the bigger men. You, you you don't come out and say you're yeah. the bigger men. <laughs> Richie, are you sticking with Argentina? I am. You might as well. I am. They've they've they got me this far. Yeah, I am. Um, hopefully, it'll be a damn sight better than the second semi-final. Mm. But yeah, I, I'm very excited by the fact that Lionel Messi is, is in a World Cup final. Um, and I would tip them to win it, yeah. Richie, enjoy. <laughs> Cheers, lads. You can see the level of expectancy. Coach, this is the game you wanted a victory, boy. It didn't happen. What happened? Oh, that made such an idiot. A game that they've been looking forward to for a long time. Where do you where do you think you got it all wrong today? And then Pepe just ruins it for everyone. Thanks a lot, Pepe. You can see the level of expectancy. He was fucking dreadful. We're all as excited as Richie is about the final. We all share that hope that it's going to be an amazing game, but let's not overlook the big one on Saturday night, the third and fourth place match that nobody but nobody wants to play. Brazil have been too polite to say it yet that they really don't want to play this game. I don't know if you saw Louis van Gaal after the match last night. I think this match should never be played. I've been saying this for 10 years about third place playoffs. <laughs> He's right, obviously. Yeah. He's 100% right. Now, I would say that in the pantheon of third place playoffs, third, fourth place playoffs, this is a reasonably interesting one. If for no other reason, then we get to see the reaction of the Brazilian crowd to the Brazilian team. Mm. Um, I can't think of any other third for- third or fourth place playoff that would have a- hold any interest for me whatsoever uh, yeah the comparison might be with Italia 90 when Italy played would have been England, England yeah. and, and I don't remember anything about that game but I'm sure people analysing it in programmes such as this Murph if podcasts existed mm. in the 1990 would have been making the same analysis how are the Italian fans going to react I don't well know yeah but I mean they lost on penalties to Argentina in a town where had some of the locals were actually sporting Argentina anyway <laughs> I mean it's a you know, it's yeah, a little okay, bit yeah, of a different yeah. deal to getting humiliated 7-1. 7-1. Have we said 7-1 enough in this podcast yet? We'll Maybe all not. watch it, though, that third place. Uh, do you know, I'll tell you the people who really do want that to stay, aside from FIFA and mm. TV people and all, is anybody who's ever in the running for a golden boot. Or indeed, oh, yeah. if Germany had been knocked out, for example, Thomas Müller and Miroslav Klose would have been just dying to score another couple of goals to fatten his mm. little record up a little bit. So those people... Are happy, but <laughs> I don't think Fred wants. To, I don't think Fred will play this game. Or if I'm going to say it right now, I think Fred might be rested. Might Joe be. might come in for this one. Yeah, I, I striking think fear into the heart of the. Might not be the worst management move uh, Scolari's ever made. That Jonathan Wilson was in Sao Paulo last night, Jonathan, for the for the game. And can I ask you first of all about the Argentinian celebrations? I don't know if you had a chance to hang around much after the final whistle, but was it pretty wild? They were in the stadium, certainly. I mean, they they've got this song. I think everybody's everybody's heard the. The bad moon rising um, takeoff, and they're, you know, they're, they're singing that. And the great thing about that to them is the word "siente" in, in the opening line of it that they, they can change it to "siete." So rather than saying "Brazil has it feel," it's "Brazil has it seven. So it might not make much sense, but it, you know, it sort of just mocks Brazil that bit further. 
and then you know, they're all there holding up five things in one hand, two things on the other. Um, but just right next to the press box, a whole load of Argentinian fans are all there with their shirts off, spitting them around their heads. So yeah, they were they were they were going mad with that. And of course, it was Argentina's national day yesterday as well, which I guess adds to the adds to the flavour. How are Brazilians taking this? Are they too tired and defeated to even get angry that Argentina are mocking them in this way? There's actually weirdly there's, there's almost more anger last night from Brazilians than there had been the night before in Belo Horizonte. But I went out after the game, Belo Horizonte, and there was thousands of people on the streets, and they, they just sort of seemed to be plodding around with their heads down. They couldn't quite believe what had happened. Um, last night there were a couple of, I mean, very minor little things in the stadium, but there weren't a huge number of Brazilians there. It's the least yellow shirts I've, I've seen in a game in this tournament, uh, and I think there's, you know, there's sort of a combination of shock, a sense of, of slowly assimilating what happened on Tuesday night. Um, but certainly, I think there's been a sense of anger against Scolari. He seems to now be bearing the brunt of that. Um, but there's, there's also, yeah, there, there is definitely irritation that Argentina might really rub their face to this. And I think there is this sense that you know, the American are supposed to be the holiest of holies. It was defiled once by Uruguay, and that was pretty bad. But this would be a whole lot worse if, if suddenly on Sunday night it's, it's messy and people sort of cavorting around American are that their greatest stadium, which they didn't even play in, in this tournament, that that could, could be the scene of Argentina's, you know, potentially their greatest triumph. In terms of how Argentina approached this final, all the pre-tournament previews suggested that, OK, they've got all these amazing attackers, but defensively they're going to be very suspect. But the further they've gone on in the competition the more solid they've looked, they're not conceding goals, but they're also, uh, they're nowhere near as spectacular as we might have imagined. Is there any particular reason for that, do you think? Is that just big just big tournament pressure and what it does to teams as it goes on? No, I, well, it's probably that probably, yeah, but I think it's mainly it's Alejandro Sabella. I think that's just how he is. If, if you saw his Estudiantes team, that, that's how they played. They, and I remember a, a game, I think it was the fourth last game of the season, they went to Vélez and they were two points clear of Vélez. Um, and they both had quite easy fixtures after that. So sort of, as long as they didn't lose that game, they were going to win the title. And they just sat five men on, on the edge of their box, three midfielders deep, played it for a nil-nil, didn't, you know, never looked like trying to score. That's that's Sabella's personality. He's a very defensively minded, cautious coach. You know, I mean, the opposite of what he was as a player. And I, I think really, what happened in qualifying was the outlier in a sense that the fact that they were so open, they're so so fluent in, in qualifying. His instincts have always been towards a more defensive approach. I think you, you saw that with the five-three-two they adopted in the, in the, in, in the first game. That, that that was his caution suddenly seizing control. And then, of course, the injuries they've had—the fact that Iguain wasn't fully fit at the start—and yeah, he he had a very good quarter final. wasn't wasn't quite together in, in the semi. Um, uh, Aguero being, being unfit, so that he couldn't take his place on the left. They lost De Maria now, so I think that pragmatism really you know, really has come to the fore again. We all are aware at this point of Leo Messi's preferences for team selection. Whether you know whether or not Sabella's listened to them, I don't know. But Messi himself, his form has tailed away over the last game and a half. Maybe if you, if you take the second half of the quarter final and certainly the semi final, he was extremely quiet. Is have you any theory as to how he can get back involved for the final? Because I think everyone's happy to see him in there, but we would really love him as football fans to perform and to win. And a lot of people, I'm sure, would love him to win it for his team. Yeah, I think to be fair to him, so the, the team plan in the quarterfinal meant that he he had less of a role. I think in, in the semi, yeah, he had Nigel Dion on him and then um, Jordi Klasser. Um So he, he always had a, a direct man marker. Um, so you know, I think that made it made it very difficult. And, and in a sense, 
he, he did a useful role for Saudi, even though he wasn't involved in the attacking sense, uh, because he, he, he forced Wesley Snyder to play deeper. So Snyder was less of an attacking force, less of a creative force. And that, I think, negated the effect of Robin, who, who was the player they were terrified of because of his pace against what is a very slow defence. Is it as simple as that? You just put a man marker on Messi and you can tie him up a little bit? I, th- I think, it, well, I mean, it's not simple, but I, I think Nigel de Jong is, is very, very good at that. Yeah, it, it's not just a man marker. They, you know, the Dutch changed the system. They played de Jong just in front of the, the, you know, the back three, and then they played Snyder deeper and Van Alden alongside him. So they had three relatively deep line midfielders, which is, is not how they played until now. Um, and he, they had one of the centre-backs stepping up. So they, they had always one man on him. And then you know, two men in front of him and an, another one coming from behind. So there's sort of one man plus three half-men around him. So you, you can shut him down, but you know, it is difficult. And as we've seen against Iran, against, um, against Switzerland, you have one little slip and, and he, he will punish you. The German team, meanwhile, I guess the big conundrum here, the big question is the whether, I don't know, if, I'm sure he is sticking with Mesut Ozil, there's no suggestion that he's not, but I certainly have seen some German pundits and some pundits in general suggesting that maybe they're carrying Ozil to a certain extent. And you've also got Klosse in there who, while hugely effective in, in terms of goal scoring, doesn't necessarily contribute that much to general play. Now we're saying all this having seen him score seven goals against Brazil, so they're obviously doing most things right. But would you expect any... Massive masterstroke from Yogi Love, selection-wise or tactics-wise, in the final. I, I doubt it. I mean, I, I think the way they played against France, the, that, that solidity. I mean, it sounds like bizarre to say it, but in terms of winning the World Cup, that's almost a more significant performance than, than the seven-one. The seven-one was a, a freakish thing, a, a sort of demolition of a side that was self-destructing. Uh, yeah, self-destructing because they've been you know, sort of forced to self-destruct. But I think that solidity against France will be the real encouraging thing. With Kadira uh, at the back of midfield, back in alongside Schweinsteiger, that that does seem to have given them a, a greater base there. Now Kadira got forward a lot against Brazil, um, was, was a very important, you know, in the attacking phase. Now whether he's just got to rein that in slightly against Messi, yeah, but yeah, I, I guess that's how they play it. The, the, the difference, of course, to the, to the Dutch game is that they only have two centre backs, so they don't have that option of, a, of somebody leaving the back three to to go and provide that extra man behind the man marker. But I. I I think, yeah, I think when you've won a game seven one and played as well as that, it'd be astonishing to see any any team changes that that weren't you know, injury forced. Yeah. So the seven one, Jonathan, you're saying it obviously gives the team a huge amount of confidence and it's no harm. But in terms of actually previewing the final, you wouldn't be giving too much credence to that to the way that match panned out. No, I mean I, I can't imagine two teams who, who could approach a game more differently than that Brazil and this Argentina. <laughs> I think that was actually the really impressive thing about this Argentina that you know, I think it was a very emotional day for them yesterday. The, the fact that they're wearing the black armbands for De Stefano, um, the fact that uh, a second Argentinian journalist, Jorge Lopez, had been killed in a car crash, a, a, a journalist who's very, very close to Messi. Um, yes, yeah, Bella afterwards dedicated the, the win to him. So I, I think the relationship between the Argentinian press and the Argentinian players is, is quite different to what we're used to in, in, in Britain or Ireland. But I, I think they are much closer. And I think that was something the players genuinely felt. So, you know, he, he was sort of a, if not a friend, then certainly somebody they were used to seeing around. So, so his, his death and leaving two, two young kids, you know, is a terrible thing. And, and, and I think the players genuinely felt that. So that coupled with, I just mean, National Day, which is, is something that's taken very seriously, is, is something that's emotionally invested in. It, there, there was a potential for them to get all hysterical in the way that Brazil had, and, and they didn't. They were incredibly disciplined, incredibly steely. And I think that's 
you know, it's almost a stereotypical way in which two countries deal with emotion. That there's, there's a great flamboyance of the Brazilians and a slightly more reserved, slightly more more canny um, front of the Argentinians. So, if we've got the two mentally toughest teams in the final, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I thought the really impressive thing, well, <laughs> one of the incredibly impressive things about Germany on, on, on Tuesday was the absolute lack of celebration afterwards. They, they saluted their fans, they, they troop off, I mean, nothing like Argentina's celebrations. And then you had Tony Cross in the press conference saying, well, you, you win nothing in semi-finals, we've got another game to play, this means nothing. Which is, you know, exactly the way to deal with a 7-1 win. Yes, it was brilliant, but actually, if they don't win the final, it's a, it's a happy footnote rather than anything significant. So, uh, you know, I, I think you know, Germany were incredibly mentally strong in dealing with that atmosphere. And they dealt with it within 10 minutes. Uh, but and also, they, I think they, they have that pragmatism to, 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 to keep pushing on and not get distracted by what happens. Quick prediction. John, Jonathan, who's going to win? Um, everything rational in me says Germany to win it narrowly. But there has been this very strange sense of the tournament that this is Messi's tournament. Um, and you, know, you don't have to believe in destiny to have a sense that players can be lifted by that and equally opposing players can be deflated by that so very tight probably a Germany win but there is something strange about this Argentina team there is a sort of a, a sense that this is theirs Alright Jonathan listen enjoy the final one way or the other thanks very much Cheers thanks It's an interesting strand to the analysis by Jonathan the logical side of his brain mm. and if we all listen to and read Jonathan a lot we'll know that he employs that that side of his brain a lot in his analysis puts some great tactical stuff out there that makes him feel that Germany will definitely win this game but the old romantic in him mm. is saying that there's a feeling a sense a strange idea of maybe the D word Mur- Murph destiny uh, behind Argentina and Leo Messi. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's the it's the duality of Wilson, really, is <laughs> that, what we're is talking what about is. here, you know. Uh, on the one hand, a cold-hearted, analytical journalist. And on the other hand, you know, a man who's a slave to the beautiful game. Um, it's interesting to see that, that battle being played out in this particular podcast. What's your prediction here? My prediction... Uh, <laughs> my prediction is Germany to win this game because they're a much better team They've had a day's extra rest. They haven't played two periods of extra time in this tournament. Yeah, it's Germany. Germany to win. All right, we hope you've enjoyed today's Irish Times Second Gatman's World Cup podcast. Hope you've enjoyed all of these programmes that we've been bringing you uh, over the last few weeks because we've um, well, greatly enjoyed them. It is. It's kind of nice to be able to just come in and talk about football. Uh, talk about yeah, it's been, it's, it's been uh, brilliant. It's, it's been really, it's been really been great. Fun. So thanks very much for all the feedback. You can check out all the other Irish Times shows, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. You can give us some direct feedback, please, on secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. Positive emails only. Um, we just will oh, bin the negative ones straight yeah, away. We actually have a filter. so Yeah, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at secondcaptains, facebook.com forward slash secondcaptains. We'll talk to you again after the World Cup final on Monday. Chat to you then, buddy. It's 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.